Let's pray. Father, the picture of those shutters opening and light flooding into the sanctuary is, is an image that Scripture itself gives um, about what we're all about right now in these next few moments. The unfolding of your word gives light. And Lord, truth be told, we live, I, I think, so unaware of the amount of darkness in our lives. We are covered in it. And apart from God who is light penetrating into that darkness, that's where we will remain. And so we ask right now that just as this room has been lit up with the sunlight, that you would provide the gift of illumination here in Luke chapter 18. We are grateful for a new chapter in Luke. We, we see the, the uh, in some ways, the end here. Uh, Luke 24 isn't far away. We are a long way into the study of this book, and yet we have uh, some work yet to do. So be with us now, Lord, and I pray that you, as we do work, that you would do work. Help us to see what's really here in our Bibles. Help us to understand the words of Jesus clearly. Um, Lord, as we talk about the topic of prayer and uh, particularly as we begin to think about the issue of justice as well this morning Lord guard us from error be with this church as we thread the needle on this topic in Jesus name amen nearly 20 years ago when I began to learn about the art and craft of biblical preaching a very wise person turned me on to the words of an old dead preacher by the name of John Henry Jowett. Um, John Henry Jowett was known as kind of a preacher's preacher, that he lived at the turn of the 20th century, and he once said something so impactful about how to put together a sermon. I've never forgotten it. Uh, it's, a, it's a paragraph that has shaped me. A little background, though before we get to the paragraph. Um, I believe in, in what you might call big idea preaching. Um, that is that any given sermon ought to be about one thing, one big idea. You might have multiple points that develop that big idea. You could have several illustrations or applications that seek to bring that big idea home. But at the end of the day, a biblical sermon is always to be about one thing. You can call that a, a proposition or a primary claim, a big idea. Every sermon should be about one thing. That one thing is always written in your sermon outline in bold with an arrow on it. It's been that way for 13 years in this church. And whether you know it or not, if you're drawn to this kind of preaching, that is thanks in large part due to a British preacher that's been dead for 95 years by the name of John Henry Jowett. And so in the year 1912, uh, he gave a series of lectures at Yale University, uh, the same year that the Titanic set sail and sank, 1912. These words were spoken 106 years ago. Jowett said this about the sentence that you find at the top of your sermon outline every Sunday. Quote, I have a conviction that no sermon is ready for preaching not ready for writing out until we can express its theme in a short, pregnant sentence as clear as crystal. I find the getting of that sentence is the hardest, the most exacting, 
and the most fruitful labor in my study to compel oneself to fashion that sentence, to dismiss every word that is vague, ragged, ambiguous, and to think oneself through to a form of words which defines the theme with scrupulous exactness. This is surely one of the most vital and essential factors in the making of a sermon. I do not think that sermon ought to be preached or even written until that sentence has emerged clear and lucid as a cloudless moon. End quote. Now you have to know uh, that paragraph has changed me. Uh, Somebody once said that books don't change people, paragraphs do. That paragraph for 19 years has been doing work on my heart as I think about what preaching is and particularly the, the preparation to preach, how to serve people well. Now, some weeks it's just what Jowett says. Getting to the big idea can be hard and exacting work because sometimes it's just difficult to know how to boil a whole paragraph or a chapter down to one sentence. That is, that is hard work sometimes. Other times it's far simpler. Take the passage we have in front of us. We couldn't miss the big idea of this paragraph if we were trying, and we would have to be trying, because Luke tells us what the big idea is. Chapter 18, verse 1, he actually tells us, in the words of Puritan Matthew Henry, this parable has its key hanging at the door. Luke 18, 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Luke doesn't bury his lead here. He told them a parable to the effect that they'd always to pray and not lose heart. Now, I'm not always the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm looking at verse 1 on Monday and thinking, I think we have a big idea here. And so here's the big idea. Don't ever grow weary in praying for what God has promised. Don't ever grow weary in praying for what God has promised. Don't ever, 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 ever grow weary in praying for what God has promised. Now, I want to defend that proposition with two points that are stretched out in front of us. Verses 2 through 8 are going to show us why we don't need to grow weary in praying for what God has promised. I just want to assume at this point given that this is the text that we have in front of us this morning, that there are those in this room right now that are growing weary. I assume that the Lord knows how to build His church, that He's way ahead of the power curve here, and that there are people in this room who are weary. And you're ready to give up. You may be ready to give up on your marriage. You may be ready to give up on your children. You may be ready to give up on a particular friend or perhaps your church, or the church. You may be ready to give up on God. And it may well be that you are prepared to give up on life itself. You're weary. It's interesting, when Jesus says lose heart here in verse 1, always pray and not lose heart, we find that exact same phrase translated in the other, other places in the New Testament as grow weary. So 2 Thessalonians 3.13, we read, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Or we read in Galatians 6.9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, 
for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's, that's the flavor here in Luke 18.1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they had always to pray and not grow weary, not lose heart. Who's the them here? Verse 1 says he told them a parable. Who's them? If you let your eyes run back up to chapter 17, verse 22, we find out who the them is. It's the disciples. In fact, it's pretty clear from the context of the parable that chapter 18 should be thought of as, as intimately related to what Jesus just told his disciples in chapter 17 about the already not yet nature of the kingdom. We'll see more evidence of this when we reach verses 7 and 8, but Jesus in context is talking about the timing and the nature of events surrounding his return. That's where chapter 18 verse 1 appears. But for now, let's just recognize that he's preparing to teach his disciples about prayer, and the main thing he wants to get across to them is that they always to pray and not lose heart, not grow weary, or to use the big idea today, don't ever grow weary in praying for what God has promised. I just wonder if there's somebody or several somebodies in the sanctuary this morning who are growing weary of praying for what God has promised. When I say praying for what God has promised, I mean that. I mean to say that you have warrant for it in the Word of God, like chapter and verse, for asking, for pleading, for begging for what you are praying for, and yet you haven't seen an answer from Him, and you're starting to give way, and you're exhausted. The Bible is filled with promises from God to us in Christ of His presence, His power, His peace, His pleasure, His people in our lives. And yet, it's true all the same that we can be praying over a promise. Just as the Puritan Thomas Manton says, we can be showing God His handwriting in prayer. I love that idea. Show God His handwriting, praying Scripture to Him. And yet, our only experience is brass heavens. You know what I mean? From our perspective, it appears as if we're dialing and dialing and dialing a number where no one picks up. And we have to wonder after a while if there is anybody home. Well, if you've ever thought or felt that way, or perhaps you're thinking or feeling that way right now, this parable, and this verse in particular, is for you. See, Jesus told his disciples this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. In other words, don't ever grow weary in praying for what God has promised. Now, that's easier said than done, right? So Jesus offers us at least two reasons here in this passage for why we ought to pray and not lose heart. Here's here's the first reason. If we are going to prevail in prayer, I love that word here, prevail in prayer, because this is what happens for this woman. If we're going to prevail in prayer as a church, then we absolutely must, number one, remember who we're not praying to. If we are going to prevail in prayer as a church, then we are going to have to remember who we are not praying to. Look with me once more at this parable, starting in verse 2. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while... He refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. 
Well, that's the parable. And what's the point? The point is that disciples of Jesus ought always to pray and not lose heart, to not ever grow weary in praying for what God has promised. And the first reason that ought to help us take courage is that we need to remember who we're not praying to. So this parable has two characters in it. You see that? Not a very complex parable. Two characters, a widow and a judge. And as the explanation of the parable unfolds in verses 6 to 8, it becomes clear that we as Jesus' disciples need to cast ourselves into this parable, into the role of widow, and then we need to cast Jesus or cast God into the role of this parable and contrast him with the judge. So we need to cast ourselves into the role of the widow and compare ourselves with her. We need to cast God into the parable and contrast him with the judge. That's how this works. In verse 2 and again in verse 4, we learn that this judge is a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Jesus tells us this about him in verse 2. The judge himself concedes as much in verse 4. I neither fear God nor respect man. He knows himself pretty well. That about covers everything you need to know about him, doesn't it? Notice the summary of this man's life is that he rejects the two great commandments. Love God, love people. He loves neither. In other words, despite the fact that he's supposed to be a public servant... This is one city official who's totally wrapped up in himself. Hmm. As Dale Stinson taught us about this time last year, a man wrapped up in himself makes a pretty small package. This judge neither fears God nor respects man. This judge is simply not interested in anything or anyone outside of himself. He's the sort of public servant who thinks this job would be great if it weren't for the people that I had to deal with. In fact, New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says it this way, that the man in the parable was likely a Jewish man, though clearly not a religious one. He's not a scribe or a Pharisee. He's rather a political type of police judge. This type of person was often an authority with enough power not to worry about how others responded to him. You feel the dynamic here? That's just the point. This man doesn't care about God He doesn't care about people because, frankly, he doesn't have to. His position affords him enough distance to live a comfortably affluent existence far enough away from religion, far enough away from relationships, or almost far enough away from relationships. Because in verse 3, it tells us that there's one particular relationship, there's one certain person that he evidently just can't shake says in verse 3, there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Jesus tells us that this woman is a widow, which may indicate that the problem is likely monetary in nature. It doesn't actually say what she wants justice for. A person like this in the ancient world found themselves oftentimes in an incredibly precarious situation. Widows were almost entirely dependent upon their deceased husband's estate or the charity of immediate or extended family members. Generally speaking, it would be difficult to think of a more vulnerable person in the first century than a widow, a woman whose husband who had died. The Apostle Paul summarizes this with vivid vocabulary in 1 Timothy 5.5. 5. 
1 Timothy 5.5 is a chapter almost entirely devoted to the care of widows. In 1 Timothy 5.5, Paul says, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Isn't that a stunningly parallel passage? I never thought about Luke 18 and 1 Timothy 5 together like that. Paul's practically writing the footnotes to this narrative in 1 Timothy 5.5. 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. That's what's going on here. Night and day, she kept coming to him. Give me justice against my adversary. And she won't let him go. And now that we've hit the word justice, allow me just one brief rabbit trail through our text and then I'll get us back on the path. I'd like to tie into a current issue in the evangelical world today, if I may. No less than four times we see the word justice in our text. Give me justice against my adversary, verse 3. I will give her justice, verse 5. Will not God give justice to his elect, verse 7. And he, w- he will give justice to them speedily, verse 8. So one of the obvious themes, and I'd call it a sub-theme, actually, in this parable is, is justice. And you may have noticed in the broader evangelical world these days that the topic of justice has become increasingly discussed and a debated and a divisive issue, particularly when it comes to the whole realm of what sometimes is called social justice, which is very strange because that phrase social justice didn't operate that way, even as recent as just a few years ago. Now here's what's interesting about the topic. For some of us, this is the first you're hearing about it. For others of us, you're wondering what's taken me so long to address it. And my answer, at least to the second question, is that generally speaking, we let the Word of God itself dictate where we're going to head as a church, what we're going to tackle and when. And several weeks ago, it occurred to me as I was looking out ahead at the parable of the persistent widow, this word justice appears four times in this paragraph and that it is related to the controversy over social justice. And so I've been thinking about that and getting ready for this sermon. Perhaps you've been thinking about it as you've reflected on this text. So while the elephant may not be exactly in the room, I do believe it's in proximity to the room, and I'm on solid enough ground to at least say something about it. And here's what I want to say. If you need some background, if you're wondering what in the world at all I'm talking about with reference to a controversy over social justice, and you want to get yourself up to speed on the discussion, this works community group study guide is for that purpose. Zachary and I worked on that this week for you. Uh, Inside that study guide are a number of articles and addresses and interviews that will serve that purpose. The entire study guide is designed for you to work through with your community group or your family so that you can begin to make heads or tails right now with what's going on in this controversy. Secondly, I'd like to say to those of you who have been following this issue for some time about social justice and wondering where I or we as a leadership or we as a church stand on this matter, you need to know at this point I don't speak for the elders, much less for the entire church. The eldership has not even sat down to talk about this issue together. Pastor Aaron and I have discussed and prayed over this issue together, and we tend to see eye to eye over it, but I am not representing him or the elders when I say this. I have seen the statement on social justice and the gospel I have read and carefully reflected on the statement on social justice and the gospel, and I have signed, eagerly signed, the statement on social justice and the gospel. 
I've signed it not because I believe anyone who doesn't sign it is a, is a Marxist or a heretic, but rather because I believe that the statement contains sound doctrine. And furthermore, I believe that the statement has its finger on the pulse of something that's of critical importance right now, and I want to add my voice to the growing chorus of more than 8,000 signatories last time I checked. Now, there are fine Christian leaders on both sides of this issue. Fine doesn't even begin to describe it. There are eminent, godly Christian men and women on both sides of this issue. Many who are supportive of the statement, many of whom are not. But it's my belief at this point that the people that are going to be most helpful in leading this discussion forward are those with cooler heads and warmer hearts. Those who are willing to ask questions of one another. Those who are willing to assume the best of one another and to be patient with one another and ask each other what you mean by social justice or various definitions you may be, of terms you may be using. Willingness to represent the other person's position accurately and then being willing to take a position and yet hold that position with clarity and charity. If you want to speak with me more about it after the sermon in the days ahead, I'm, I'm happy to. As I said, if you're new to the social justice conversation and what's going on, um, this week's community group study guide will begin to serve that purpose. Okay, back to our text. Let's visit verses 4 and 5 once again so we can see the response of the unjust judge to the widow's cry for justice, starting in verse 4. Jesus says, For a while he refused... But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. So the widow does get justice, not because he's moved by her plight or by any desire to obey the Mosaic law on this point, but simply because she is getting on his every last nerve. Again, Daryl Bach observes, if he continues to refuse, she will continue to come. <laughs> so he just simply throws in the towel and decides to admit defeat. Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. And Jesus' language here is really graphic. It's an, it's an interesting phrase he uses here in verse 5. Uh, so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. The judge uses language here that literally refers to giving someone a black eye. Um, in other words, she's just been pummeling him with her request for justice. And so that he doesn't have to take this abuse any longer, he's going to give it to her. He's going to give her what she wants. She'll be vindicated. She'll be cleared of any blame or suspicion at the hands of her accuser, whatever's going on. And why? Because he's interested in her case. No, because he's interested in her going away. She's getting on his case. Not because he's such a great guy, because he's a jerk and he wants to be left alone. Now, what's the point of all this? You know what the point is? God is nothing like this. To many of us, in the words of C.J. Mahaney, we tend to treat God as an ill-tempered celebrity known for lashing out at his fans. And if that's the picture that you have of God in your mind, you need to get a new one. Jesus tells this whole parable not to compare God to the unjust judge, but to contrast God with the unjust judge. This judge has no interest in the law of God, 
that has been written right into the fabric of it, significant concern for the vulnerable, especially widows. This judge is unmoved by the suffering of this woman. In fact, the suffering appears to, all the suffering that appears to move him is his his own suffering. The, The reality that she's beating him down by her continual coming. Not so with God. In Psalm 68, verse 5, King David describes God as the father, the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Or Isaiah 1:17, the Lord calls his people to account by commanding them, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Similarly, in Jeremiah chapter 22, Two, verse 3, we read, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, to the fatherless, or to the widow. Listen, not even in our suffering and sinning, in fact, especially in our suffering and sinning, God wants to hear from us. He never ever tires of listening to the prayers of his people. The question is, have you tired of praying? The question is not, is God weary of you? The question is, are you weary of God? And the point of the point is simply this, don't ever grow weary in praying for what God has promised. If we're going to prevail in prayer as a church, then we absolutely must remember who we're not praying to. Now, so that we can begin to make some practical application, let's hasten to point two because that's where all this is headed today. So don't ever grow weary in praying for what God has promised. If we're going to prevail in prayer as a church, so we absolutely must remember who we're not praying to. Secondly, I suppose you can just imagine what the blanks are here in verse two. Secondly, if we're going to prevail in prayer as a church, we absolutely must. Remember who we are praying to. If we're going to prevail in prayer as a church, second point, we must, absolutely must remember who we are praying to. Now let's go ahead and read Jesus' summary of the parable. It's found in verses 6 to 8. We can go do some application now. Starting in verse 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? First of all, recall that when Jesus speaks a parable, one of his favorite things to say to his listeners is, he who has ears to hear, what? Let him hear. He says that in Luke chapter 8, verse 8, following the parable of the sower and the soils. He says it again in Luke 14, 35 with the parable of the salt. And now in verse 6, Jesus says something reminiscent of that when he says, hear what the unjust judge says or the unrighteous judge says. He's, He's signaling, I'm wrapping up now. I'm bringing it home for application. He's Notice he's going to lay aside the parable altogether. And now he's going to speak very plainly about the nature of prayer and about the nature of God who hears our prayers. I suppose that's the first point of application to make, that God hears our prayers. Look with me at verse 7. 
And will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. All that Jesus tells us about God here in this verse is built upon the premise that God is listening. If you know Jesus, if you are a disciple of Christ, God hears you. And it's not just that he hears you. In Christ, if you are in Christ, the Father loves you. He loves you. We don't often think nearly about that in our daily lives, I bet. For sure we know that Jesus loves us. And we've all sung the nursery school song, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so, and so it is. But Jesus himself goes out of his way in John chapter 16, verse 27, to remind us that it's not just the Son who loves us, but the Father. In fact, the exact language he uses in John 16, 27 is this. Jesus tells us, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. Do you hear him? The Father himself loves you. And as an expression of that love, we read in verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect? Now this again is another evidence of the Father's love. I realize that some folks like to think of the doctrines of election and predestination as some cold, unfeeling, mechanical teaching of the Bible where God randomly or indiscriminately decides to rescue some people for salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. In the Bible, the doctrine of election is incredibly personal. It's familial. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. I hope you heard that. In love, He predestined us. The, the foreknowledge of God in the Bible is equal to the forelove of God the Father. Before the foundations of the earth, He set His love on you if you know Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're among God's elect. And if you're among the elect, will He not give justice to His elect? Will He not answer the prayers of His people? Now, provided we're praying the promises of God in the Scriptures, and provided we're not letting Him go day and night, like, David, or like Jacob wrestling with the angel, I will not let you go until you bless me. I hope you pray that way with God's promises. This promise is all ours. Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. And if you're wondering what I even mean about praying the promises of God. Can I recommend a book to you? Get Don Whitney's book, Praying the Bible. We actually have a copy of it out in Fellowship Hall on the women's ministry table. I suspect that one is there to stay, but take a look at it and thumb through it. Uh, we should get a copy of it for our library, Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. Um, this book will model for you what it looks like, as I said earlier, as Thomas Manton says, to show God his handwriting in Scripture, to use God's Word as fuel for prayer. It'll model for you what it looks like to speak to God, 
to use his language to speak to him as you pray. Finally, would you look with me at verse 8? Verse 8, Jesus ends his teaching with a clear word of encouragement, but also with a note of caution, a note of uncertainty, not about his father, but about faith on earth. Verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I mentioned this toward the beginning of the sermon that it's pretty clear from the context of chapter 18 that this should be thought of as intimately related to what Jesus was just talking about in chapter 17. Chapter 17, Jesus was talking with his disciples about end-time events, events surrounding his second coming. So once again, we find ourselves studying eschatology. That's what verse 8 is. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes will he find faith on earth? That's eschatology, end time study. What's the point? What's he saying? If you remember back two weeks ago, or better yet, just scan verses 26 to 37, you'll recall that Jesus is comparing the final generation that will be alive at the time of his coming to the generation that was alive at the time of Noah and the worldwide flood. How many believers were alive on earth at the time that the rains began to fall during the flood? Yeah, not many. It's eight uh, to be precise. Eight persons, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus says, it's going to be just like that when I return. You say, aren't there millions and millions of evangelical believers worldwide right now? And the answer is yes, right now. But things will change. Before Jesus returns, things will change swiftly. Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, verse 12, that at the time of the end, the love of many will grow cold. The Bible sometimes describes apostasy and falling away in the last days that we wouldn't believe unless we read it in Scripture. That's why Jesus says what he says in verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's a big question. The Son of Man will be looking for those who are looking for Him, one commentator said this week as I studied. And I would add, not just looking for Jesus, but eagerly awaiting for Jesus. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear again a second time not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Who's getting saved? We normally would say those who believe in Jesus, and that's not what Hebrews 9.28 says. Hebrews 9.28 describes that faith in a particular way. It says that Jesus is coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And why? Because that's true faith. That's the sort of faith the Son of Man is looking for when he returns. Faith that is eagerly awaiting his return. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Is that the way you live your life? Don't you want it to be? Well, don't ever go weary in praying for what God has promised. If we are going to prevail in prayer as a church, then we absolutely must. Number one, remember who we're not praying to. Number two, remember who we are praying to. I love preaching on prayer. I love preaching on prayer because of the way that the Bible approaches prayer. It keeps us constantly on a stretch. Um, given the way that we tend to fall into so many well-worn patterns and cliches, 
And we don't really learn to deepen our conversation with God any time in Scripture where the Bible is teaching us how to pray or what prayer looks like. It's worth a deep dive. And if we're careful to pay attention, Scriptures like these furnish us with all kinds of fresh models and examples for prayer. In this case, Jesus is saying, you're like the widow. Be like the widow. And I'm nothing like that judge. So I want to encourage you this week, in the next couple of weeks, that if your prayer life and your, your praying imagination has become too wet to burn, that today's passage, as well as the next two passages, the next two weeks, are going to be a flamethrower. As we've seen in this first parable in Luke 18, our model for prayer is that persistent, importunate, persevering widow. Keep knocking. Keep coming to God. He's not tiring of you. Pray for what he has promised. But Jesus isn't done with this yet as it relates to prayer because next week we're going to learn about the role of repentance in praying well. And our example is going to be a tax collector. Then two weeks from today, we're going to encounter yet another example, a third model for prayer in our lives, and that would be what the Lord says about receiving the kingdom of God as a little child. So the third model for our prayer lives is what the Lord says about children. Children are a third portrait of praying well. How many of us need this right now in our prayer lives? I do. I do. I could benefit from sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him how we might approach the Father straight from Scripture and stimulate and revive and bring new life and fresh communion to him in our communion with him. I'm looking forward to these next few weeks. Now let's do what we've been talking about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that when we turn to passages like Luke 18, we see these precious words like we see in verse 1, you told your disciples the parable, this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Father, I can turn to prayer journals that I've written over this particular verse some 15, 16 years ago that are stained with tears, with joy <laughs> in the midst of adversity as I hung on to this promise. And so I pray, Father, that you would give this passage um, fresh power in this church. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to be people who search your word for promises. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. So may we begin with Jesus. Romans 8.32 says that you who did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all, how will you not also graciously with him give us all things? all things for life and godliness. And may our reading of the scripture, Lord, be filled. May it be a, a promise-hunting journey that we would anchor all of our prayers in what you have already promised and hang on and pray and pray and pray until we sense that you yield and to know that you're not like this judge. You are eager to hear from us. You love us. You desire for us to come up into your presence, your throne of grace that you have purchased for us by Jesus. Lord, may we pray this way about the salvation of our children. May we pray this way about the perseverance of our marriages. May we pray this way for those that we mentor and disciple and counsel. May we pray this way for people on our lists of five. 
May we pray this way for our spouses and for our children. May we pray this way for one another. And Father, I do give the matter of justice and the controversy of justice, social justice in particular, into your hands. Lord, this is deep, deep grief that there's even a controversy over this. And I pray that you would preserve not just the evangelical free church, but the broader evangelical movement. Help us to rivet our attention on the gospel and help us to do controversy in a way that brings glory to you and is ultimately edifying to the church and brings forward motion to the mission that you've given us to be and make disciples of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.